Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Government to call in Russian ambassador after Taoiseach and more than 50 other Irish officials are banned from entering the country. Thanks to Deputy for alerting me to, the, to this news that I'm sanctioned. It's a, it's a new development. I uh, don't think I've ever been sanctioned before. We'll be discussing the Irish dental system this evening and why patients are facing high costs and longer waiting lists, while more and more people are opting to explore treatment options abroad. Matt Aaron will be joining us to explain why we've been experiencing such mild weather this month. And later, Donald Trump announces 2024 US presidential bid, but daughter Ivanka says she's out this time. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. As always, join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Russia has banned entry to Taoiseach Michal Martin and more than 50 other top officials in response to Western sanctions over Ukraine. Among those listed are Tanishta Leo Vradker, Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney and Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue, as well as a number of other key officials and politicians. The news took the Taoiseach by surprise when he learned about the ban in the dial of this afternoon. Thanks to the Deputy for alerting me to, the, to this news that I'm sanctioned. As I'm, uh... It's a new development. I uh, don't think I've ever been sanctioned before. Diplomatic channels are the last resort, always. Um, and diplomacy matters in the end of the day, no matter how unpalatable it can be at certain times. And before we get reaction to this, a reminder about our nightly live interactive poll, which will allow you to get involved in the show and tell us what you think about the big issues of the day. Tonight, we're asking, would you consider going abroad for health care or treatment? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ae forward slash vote or follow the QR code on screen and we'll bring you the poll results a little later in the programme. But back to the story of the government and its call to the Russian ambassador to give its response to the imposition by Russia of sanctions on senior politicians over support over Ukraine. Well, co-leader of the Social Democrats, Russian Shortall, and Fianna Foyle TD, Barry Cowan, are here with me now. And I'm going to come to you first, Barry. Uh, are you on the list? Are you one of the politicians that's been banned? Do you know at this point? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no intention or plans to travel to Russia anyhow. Um, you know, as the Taoiseach said, diplomacy matters no matter how unpalatable it might seem. And you would want obviously to, to reciprocate and to close the embassy and ask those that are in it to pack their bags and exit our shores. But I think what has been uh, consistent during the course of this terrible war, and this uh, is the unity across Europe, the unity within the EU, um, and it's important that we maintain that unity and we don't allow uh, this Russian um, 
effort on their part to break, break that up. And this is only part of that sort of campaign and that we they know engage Simon, in. Simon Coveney has summoned the Russian ambassador uh, to Ivy House tomorrow, I believe. What's he going to say to him, do you think? Well, he again re reiterate the Irish people, the Irish government's abhorrence of the illegal aggression um, and invasion by Russia into uh, sovereign Ukraine and reiterate our abhorrence and our, our, our total opposition to it um, and the fact that we will continue to work with our partners in Europe to do everything we can to help and assist the Ukrainian people and resist uh, that aggression that has been um, visited upon them. Do you think he should look for the Russian ambassador to intervene here and to try and get that decision reversed? Which decision? The decision to ban the Taoiseach and 50 others from Russia. Well, I, I don't think it's very relevant, to be quite honest. Um, as I said to you, I'm sure nobody else that's on this list has any intention of travelling to Russia. Um, so but we do, have, we do have a Russian, we do have an Irish embassy there. There may only be four in it, but they do represent our interests and those of our citizens and those who engage with them. Uh, and it's important that we maintain that. And that might have to be reciprocated by maintaining... The, the, the diplomatic procedures that we have here in relation to the Russian embassy as much as we would like to think we could uh, ban them, as I said earlier. Because we saw uh, Neil Richmond uh, from Fine Gael once again calling today for that Russian embassy, which is in his constituency, to be closed and for the ambassador to be expelled. Now, as Barry pointed out, Russian Churchill, we, Ireland, has an embassy in Russia. So there's maybe a bit of a quid pro quo here. What do you think should happen? Well, first of all, this was an extraordinary decision. It seemed to come completely out of the blue. The Taoiseach clearly didn't get any notice of it. And it's very hard to understand what the thinking is. I'm not aware of any other European country that has had a similar experience in relation to sanctions. Um, it's, it's just not on. I'm glad that uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs has uh, summoned the, the ambassador in tomorrow. But I do think that we need to seriously think now about uh, closing the embassy. Um, and at a minimum sanctioning the, the ambassador himself. In what way? Well, he could be expelled. And there's been a lot of calls for his expulsion uh, since, you know, over, over recent months. Um, there has to be some response to this. I, I think it's right to call him in, ask him what this is about, what their thinking is. And uh, I, I think we need to consider now some sanction in return for that. I just don't think it's on to continue like this and to, to have that kind of treatment of our most senior politicians. Yeah, I accept um, that this can't simply be brushed aside. This can't, simply can't, uh, that nothing should be done about it, of course. And I accept and appreciate and welcome the Minister for Foreign Affairs to bring the ambassador in before him and reiterate their total abhorrence in relation to the ongoing he's, he's war He's done that before, hasn't he? Has, he? He's he done has, the Russian ambassador before and I don't think it's made any and, difference. And, and this sort of... Play acting is unprecedented. Uh, it, it serves no purpose, um, and you know we won't be we won't be deterred in our efforts to help and support the Ukrainian people uh, by any such action on the part of the Very Russians. Very briefly, do you have any understanding why the Taoiseach and fifty other politicians and senior officials have been targeted? No, I don't. And and like I said, you know, I, I'm not so sure what purpose it serves. I'm not sure what engagement the Taoiseach or others would have envisaged. By going to Russia, as I said, you know, we have set our stall out by working with our partners within the EU in order to ensure that there's unity. And that sort of unity is something that the Russians would like to deter and would like to break. Uh, when they do that, or if they were to do that, that's when they are making progress and we can't allow that. All right, look, I want to move on to another topic. Uh, we're going to be discussing the Irish Dental Service and why we have such high costs here and waiting lists 
in this country. There has been an almost 25% fall in the number of dentists claiming reimbursement through the Dental Treatment Services Scheme. This is a scheme which provides access to dental treatment for medical card holders, and there's about 1.5 million of those. Dr. Caroline Robbins, president of the Irish Dental Association, and Mary Flanagan from Creative Dental Ireland also joined the panel. You are both very welcome to the programme. And I want to come to you first, Caroline, because your association represents 2,000 dentists. Yes. It's about that in yeah. Ireland. How many of those access this scheme? As of this month, there were less than 619 forms submitted for payment. Um, so that probably quite starkly highlights that there's probably around only about 600 dentists still participating in the scheme. So this is 600 dentists to provide specific treatments, not all treatments, but specific treatments to 1.5 yeah. million medical card holders. It is. In 2019, we were sitting around 1,500. By January of this year, we were about down to 1,150. And the latest figures that we have are sitting just over the 600 mark. And what are you putting that down to? The scheme is just unfit for purpose. Um, the scheme was developed in 1994. I graduated in 1995. I don't practice the same dentistry I practiced in 1995. No, the scheme has changed. It has been adjusted no, along that period. No, no, it is still the same scheme that was devised in 1994. We're still following the same rules. Um, it, was, it was changed in 2009 when the economy crashed. And overnight, it became an emergency-only service. So they took away our ability to clean our patients' teeth. They were allowed to provide two emergency fillings per year. And we could pull all the teeth we wanted. And that was that. Previous to that, we could have undertaken all the treatment needs that they needed, cleaned their teeth, and provided dentures and things. But it, that changed overnight. OK, but has that scheme not been expanded now again? No, that hasn't happened. From May, what has happened has they have reintroduced the cleaning from May, which was welcomed. Um, they have increased fees, which again is welcomed. But I put in the preface that it's been 17 years since the fees were increased. And previous to May, they were, um, you know, they were, it was a loss to provide the treatment and the surgery was, was, was a loss for the, for the practitioner. So just to be clear, if a person has a medical card and is entitled mm -hmm. to a treatment mm -hmm. under this particular scheme, but can't get access to a dentist, and given the fact there's about 600 you're saying, I'm sure some of them really mm -hmm. do have difficulty. Mm -hmm. How do they access dental care? They just pay for it privately? They have the option. Yes, they may pay, choose to pay for it privately, or they can seek through the HSC because it is the HSC's responsibility to provide the service for them. It is their scheme. So if they find that their dentist has resigned from the scheme, if they no longer hold a contract, they can still look after that patient. And some patients may do that on a, you know, dentists may do it on a pro bono basis, or they will, you know, pay a fee to, to be treated as a private patient, or they can ask through their HSC clinic. Is but pro bono common at this point? It, yeah, it happens, it does. You know, I would certainly, you know, we look after our patients and, that that would be that is happening. Okay, so the big difficulty for you at this point is that they are leaving the scheme in the droves and it needs to be reviewed. Couldn't the argument be made, I suppose, uh, Caroline, that there is a shortage of dentists out there, there's huge demand mm. from private mm. patients, and that it might simply be easier to deal with those private patients and charge them in excess of what they get under the scheme? No, I don't... There's more money to be made with private patients. I think if that was the case, you would have seen when their fees were increased... That, that dentist would have come back to the scheme. So they haven't. So it's not about the money. 
It's always about the... It has to be about the patient, and that's what it should be about. It's about patient care. You know, I want my patients... I want to treat my patient. I don't want to be treating my medical card patient and my private patient. My patient should be my patient in the chair, and I should be able to offer them the best treatment that they, they need on the day with science that backs it and which looks after them the best. But you say you can't do that. I can't do that on You have to treat your private no. and your medical uh, yes, card scheme yes. patients differently. Yes, I um, when my medical card patient sits in my chair, I'm I'm controlled by the contract of what I'm allowed to offer them, which isn't as much as I can offer my private patients. So it's it's a very you're stimmied in a like in a in a, in a box. And um, you know, that's that's not quality of care, that's not a quality. Yeah. There's a definite gap here, isn't there, Barry Cowan? It's pretty obvious between what the government say somebody with a medical card mm -hmm. can get, can access under this scheme and the reality of what they can actually access yeah. because there's so few dentists undertaking medical card work now. Do you accept that? Yeah, this is, this is a, a major issue that has to be addressed. I think before COVID, there was, a, there was issues with the scheme. There was a backlog uh, for patients. Uh, that worsened and exacerbated, obviously, during the course of COVID. And it has become hugely apparent now and it's even greater difficulties associated with it. I get representations to my own constituency, as I'm sure Roisin does, and throughout the country by virtue of the PQs that have been submitted to the minister in an effort to seek government response on this. And the budget did present an opportunity and the minister appears to have taken that opportunity and made the first step, at least, by virtue of a further 15 million on top of the uh, allocation uh, being provided in extra funding. Five million towards a new uh, preventative scheme for not seven-year-olds. Nine million towards the backlog in relation to five million for children and orthodontics. Four million for the, four million for the scheme, public health. Which is just open to adults, I believe. And one million, uh, five million geared towards that backlog. This protector scheme. Yeah, and as, as has been said, increased fees in recent months, uh, increased provisions in relation to cleaning and so forth. But obviously the system is not fit for purpose. And obviously the minister Stephen... has recognised that. He is committed to sitting down with the association with a view to a root and branch, excuse the button, a root and branch uh, <laughs> effort to put a new scheme in place. To review the current to scheme. To review and, and, and replace and seek government approval for a new scheme. Yes, All indeed. right. I just I see a quote from Stephen Donnelly. It was back in March of this year. It was in reply to a question in the Doyle. Work on a substantive review of this scheme and the contract will commence by the end of Q2. I acknowledge immediate issues of concern with the scheme and I'm addressing this as a matter of priority. Mm -hmm. Has that review begun? Well, it hasn't. Um, it will. So there it's is not a commitment a to do then. so. Uh, the, 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 the first priority was to get increased funding to address those issues that need immediate attention, i.e. the backlog in relation to children's orthodontic, the backlog in relation to, 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 to public patients, uh, money towards the, the provision of new uh, personnel within the okay. HSE. But again, back and to the specific scheme, the review hasn't the, the started. The specific scheme is not fit for purpose. And the minister has again admitted that as late as the 20th of October when he answered a question, I think, from Duncan Smith in the Dáil, where he committed to those points they've made in relation to their budget, but is also committed to sit down with the association as soon as practically possible to review, augment, improve and approve a new scheme that is fit for purpose. Uh, there's issues with that scheme. There's also real issues with the HSC school dental scheme, isn't there, Russian Absolutely. Huge waiting lists there. The, the entire public dental service is a shambles and it has been completely neglected over many, many years. We're in a situation where in the past five years, 600 dentists have left the scheme because it was 
unfit for purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, the fees did, hadn't changed. The, there were further restrictions on what could be carried out. And, you know, we've heard from Caroline there about the restrictions, where there's no restrictions on the number of extractions, for example, but a severe limit on the number of fillings that can be given. I mean, that's, that goes against all best practice in relation to, mm-hmm. to, to dental services. Um, in, the, in the past year alone, since last January, 250 dentists have left the public scheme because it just doesn't make sense for anybody to work in it any longer. The fees that are paid don't cover the cost And you don't think that just the private private patients are just more financially attractive? Well, uh, of course, yeah. Yeah. And and dentists behave rationally. But if if dentists aren't being paid adequately to cover the costs uh, that they incur, they're not going to stay in the scheme. And they have been warned for years on this. And the Irish Dental Association has been campaigning for years. And many, many dentists continued in the scheme, even though it wasn't worth their while financially. And Kira, you mentioned, you know, the school services. Like, it is just, it, it is unforgivable what the state is doing in relation to children's children's dental care. So children are supposed to have an examination in second class, fourth class and sixth class. There's a 10 year waiting list for children in many parts of the country. Many children don't get seen for their first appointment until they're well into secondary school. Mm. Now, you know, there's a real cost And has there been funding announced, Barry, you were saying, to address that? there has. There has been a recognition. Just let let Barry respond there. That's just a drop in the ocean. And and the service has been starved of funding for years on end. And that's why we don't have sufficient dentists in. I don't dispute or, 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 or seek to, 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 to be at variance at all from what Roshan has said. Accept that. And the government has a duty to address it. All I can say is for the part of our representative who was Minister for Health was asked to address this, uh, has put forward a package of measures in relation to the immediacy of the situation with funding to help and assist in that regard and committed to sit down with the association to do an overhaul of the scheme with a view to making proposals to, to improve it upon it and address those issues. But it's very and, late right. in the day. Look, irrespective, irrespective of... It's very late in the day. Look, my party can only speak for being in government for okay. the last two years. Okay. We've had a COVID situation which, which has exacerbated... I wasn't in government that. for five years no, and my party wasn't. Was support, as you were. As you were too. No, no, I yes, All right, look, I want to move on to another aspect of dental care in this country and that's the number of people who are looking to go broad to get uh, dental treatments. Mm. And the Dental Association has said that they are not aware, uh, Mary, of increased interest in dental care abroad, but it is possible that this notion is being promoted Mm. by commercial interests who are seeking to generate business. Uh, You are one of those businesses that Mm. seeks to promote dental treatment abroad. Are you exaggerating the interest in the numbers travelling? Absolutely not, no. And I think since COVID, for some unknown reason, People, even young people, like in their 20s, what they seem to want, they all want veneers. Mm. They want a slight love island smile. And personally, I don't agree with it. I don't. Um, and I represent a dental clinic in Budapest. Mm. And, and what's I, the main driver for people to go to those clinics? Well, I can only speak for the clinic. It's creative dentist that I work with. And dental implants. And the driver is the cost, the cost in Ireland, without a doubt. And, and what's the difference in the cost? At least 50%. When you take into consideration flights and accommodation, because all those costs have to be taken into account, so it would be 50%. And the reason being, 
from Budapest, the cost of living is less expensive there. So therefore, it's a knock-on effect. Everything else is less expensive. However, what is more important and what is the most important thing is the quality of the dentistry, you know? And there are a lot of people going abroad who are going to clinics who may have only set up since COVID because of this sudden interest. And that's what I think is causing a huge problem. Uh, because you have said, the association has said, hasn't it, Caroline, that you do have real concerns about people seeking dental treatment abroad. Yeah, Why? We do, we do have concerns. I mean, I, I would be the first to say that I've seen plenty of good treatment yeah, come back. Yes, thank you. And yeah. I have seen, um, unfortunately, I have seen bad treatment sure, come yeah. back. And, you know, and it, and it has been before COVID, yeah. unfortunately, yeah, as well. Sure. What we tend to see is we see over-treatment. But patients go out looking for something and they come back with crowns on virtually all their teeth. Now, and when you, I just want to get an idea. When you say you've seen some good work and some shoddy work, well, I've some seen, dangerous yeah, work. I've, I've had a patient who's, you know, she lost all her top teeth because of the work that she had done. Because I'm but how many of those shoddy stories are out there? Plenty of shoddy stories out like, there. Like, what would you say? 60% of people are happy with their work? 70%, 80%? I'd love to get an idea. It's because it's, it's hard to say because what I see is is the is the problems. The people that are coming through my door are the ones, unfortunately, where the bridge has fallen out or they're in pain, um, or you know there's infection in their gums. You know I'm dealing with the fallout. So for me, it's quite a high percentage that walk through my door. But that said, I mean I do. I mean I I, I can't say that I haven't seen some good work coming All back right. there. I just want to go to our poll because we asked people this evening in our live interactive poll, would you consider going abroad for healthcare or treatment? And our poll found that 75% of people would still go abroad and 25% say they wouldn't. Is there a real difficulty here, Caroline, despite your warnings and your concerns, people are being driven abroad for dental treatment because they simply can't afford the treatment here. It is too costly to visit the dentist in Ireland. I suppose the first thing I would say is not to forget, dental disease is completely preventable. We don't have to be talking about veneers or crowns or bridges if we can instigate. Yes, but let's delineate. just go back to the cost, the cost of dentistry the cost, in Ireland. The, the cost, A 50% decrease in Yes, I know, and, but as you said, the cost of the economy, my, the cost of my business reflects the economy that I work in. So if our Kiwi Dental was in Budapest, my crowns would be reflective of the mm. price over there. If my practice was in Belfast, it would be reflective of the economy I work in. Likewise, if I was working in New Zealand, my, you know, my prices are reflective mm. of the economy. And anyone... But you would, you would also accept the dentists are really, really well paid in Ireland, aren't they? They earn a very good salary you... based on the prices they charge. <laughs> if, if everything that I charge went in my back pocket, I'd be a happy child. Yes, I would. But it's not because I run a business and I know what my overheads are. And when my overheads are, when I walk through the door in the morning, mm. I don't just go, how much can I charge? You know, how much am I going to make today? I'm thinking about the quality of care that I'm going to provide for my patients. But I'm also thinking about how I'm going to manage the overheads every day. It's, you know... Whether it's dentistry, whether any business, running okay. a business in Ireland is expensive. Uh, well, very briefly, Roshan, is one of the other concerns here is the number of dentists graduating in this country. That's 90 right. dentists a year. 90 dentists. Why and, so and, small? And about half of those don't stay in dentistry, go into other areas. So there's very few net additional dentists coming into the service every year. But I mean, what you were speaking about there with our two guests was in the main people who go abroad, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. To get better value on, on cosmetic dentistry. Um, what I was talking about earlier is the basic public health service that for it's children your canal, and, for, it's and your for adults. Absolutely. And that's the first responsibility of government to ensure that there's a, 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 an act, okay. a properly functioning a dental service for public patients. Okay, very briefly, Barry. Yeah, just, you know, if you have a better scheme, you have more dentists in the yeah. scheme. You'll increase the availability, you know, the, the, the pipeline of dentists into the system, and then you have more competition. You have more competition, you have better price, and that's we would hope the pathway that can but, be envisaged. But there are all right, okay, the numbers in training. And that's the difficulty. Yeah, that's another job. Okay. For, for, we could spend the whole programme, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. talking about this, but unfortunately we have to leave it there. But my thanks uh, to my panel and thanks to Caroline and Mary. Uh, after the break, we're going to be finding out if this very unusual warm spell of weather is set to stay and, more importantly, what's causing it. You're very welcome back. Unseasonable warm weather this month has been a talking point for many of us following one of the hottest summers in over 135 years. But should we be concerned instead of enjoying the winter sunshine? Well, Social Democrat co-leader Roisin Shortall, Fianna Foyle's Barry Cowan are still here. And I'm also joined by political correspondent at the Business Post, Daniel Murray, and climatologist Professor Peter Thorne. And by Matt Aaron, meteorologist Linda Hughes, who joins us this evening via Skype. Uh, Linda, you might just recap the weather that we have experienced, particularly over the last month. It's broken records. 
It has, yes. And just to put things into a bit of context, daytime temperatures in November should be about 9 to 11 degrees and minimum nighttime temperatures should be about 3 to 7 degrees in November. And we did have a minimum temperature of 15.5 degrees in Shannon last week and a highest temperature of 17.6 degrees in Donegal on Sunday. So it's considerably higher than the temperatures we would be expecting at this time of year. And just to be clear, that 15.5 degrees, that was at nighttime, and that's the highest nighttime temperature in November ever recorded. Yes, that would be the uh, lowest temperature recorded between 9pm and 9am, so overnight, and that is the highest in November ever recorded. We've also experienced some pretty devastating rainfall at times over the last couple of months. Is that related to this warmer weather? Yes, with the warming atmosphere, um, we are starting to see generally milder and wetter weather. So these wet spells that we've been having recently is also a signal of what we're going to be more likely to see in the future. So more flooding events and milder winters are what we are expecting. Now, I have noticed in the last couple of days a bit of a change. There certainly feels like there's a cold snap coming. Is this the beginning of real winter, as it were, do you think? Well, yes, temperatures now are back to normal. So for the coming week, we're going to see daytime temperatures down in single figures and some overnight frosts as well over the next few nights. But just to say, mild events in November aren't completely unusual. Um, it just It's the meteorological setup that we've seen recently, a large high pressure system over Central Europe, low pressure to the West, and that's been feeding up a southerly mild airflow over the country. So it's not unusual to have milder periods periods at this time of year, but it is unusual to see the high temperatures that we're seeing recently. All right, we'll leave it there, Linda Hughes. Thank you for that update. Now let's go to our panel. Peter, I know because I've done it over the last couple of weeks, said this is a lovely mild spell. This is so enjoyable. Are you concerned that we view weather like this that way? It, it is concerning because we we're fundamentally not set up for weather that we've seen through much of this year, particularly the real summer heat. But even this time of year, um, the, the impacts upon nature um, that will come from this kind of long, long spell of very unseasonably warm weather, it will be very extreme potentially moving forwards. Um, so it is very concerning. And yet you hear Linda saying, you know, these sort of mild events aren't that unusual this time of year? Well, climate change does not mean the end of weather, but climate change is fundamentally shifting the weather we experience. Heat waves are fundamentally a departure from normal for the time of year. So a heat wave in winter is an unusually mild spell, um, whereas a heat wave in the summer is a hugely impactful event. We're seeing more and more heat waves, more and more frequently, and that's a sure sign of climate change. So the idea of it being 17.6 degrees in Donegal last Sunday in the middle of November, you see that as a sign of a mini heat wave in November. That is a fundamentally a heat wave for November, yes. Is it your opinion that climate change is solely responsible for this and that humans are to blame? So climate change is not solely responsible for the fact that it was unusually warm. They are responsible for a degree or two of that warmth at a fundamental level. So we have always had mild spells during winter. 
but it's unusually mild and that unusualness or a degree or two of that unusualness is down to human influence upon climate change. And to look sort of across the year, as you said, we've had this unseasonably warm, I think it's one of the warmest Novembers on record. We had one of the warmest summers we've had, I think, in 135 years. And we had one of the wettest Octobers on record. So this is sort of extreme weather that the IPCC are warning about. That's what we're currently living through. Yes, the IPCC is very clear on two things about extremes that we really expect to become more frequent with climate change. That's extreme warm events and extreme wet events. And we're already seeing that in the observations in recent decades. And it's highly unusual that, for example, Ireland now, I believe, has had 16 consecutive months above the average chances of that happening without human interference in the climate system would be basically zero. It's one of the difficulties in Ireland is that sometimes we enjoy these weather events, the the heat that is. Absolutely, and people are allowed to enjoy the weather, clearly, but we must be aware of the impacts and we must think about how we frame these type of events, particularly heat waves in summer. I despair of the pictures in the media of the beach When there are people suffering, there were people who were watching this undoubtedly who were suffering or farmers who were finding it difficult to keep their animals cool um, and other impacts. And we need to get real about the impacts of climate change not all being positive, even for Ireland. Yeah, and speaking of suffering, um, that would have been discussed, particularly the suffering in third world countries at length in COP27 over the last number of weeks. What's your assessment of COP? this year, Daniel? Yeah, the COP27 process is an interesting one. There is a a chance that it becomes an irrelevancy because it's not making progress on many of the key issues that it's looking to address. Those issues are are threefold. One has to do with mitigation, which is actually reducing emissions to try and limit global warming, which is kind of the the central issue. Then there's the issue of adaptation, which is really funneling finance towards poorer countries, as you discussed there, who who are experiencing the worst impacts of climate change and and will do in the future, and, and how to fund their energy transitions as, as well as adapting to, uh, to climate change. And then finally, this issue of loss and damage, which is a big focus of this year's COP27, which is countries that have natural disasters as a result of climate change. How do they fund the cleanup jobs after that? Uh, and there's a big debate over that. And on all three of those, we seem to be failing. Those developing countries that are suffering the most, that need this loss and uh, repair fund, they had to really fight, didn't they, to get that put on the agenda? I mean, there's, there's risk resistance by Western countries to providing that money? There's huge resistance and, and there has been for years and it even shows you that it's seen as a, as a big win this year that it's even on the agenda but we're nowhere near an agreement around the kind of funding that needs to go in. Now we did see from a report produced at the beginning of the COP conference an indication of the kind of funding that's needed. It's about 1 trillion a year by 2025 ri- rising to about 2.4 trillion a year specifically to developing countries for adaptation and loss in finance. We effectively have have hardly anything committed uh, so far. So it shows you how how far off we are and and it's unlikely that there's going to be an agreement on that by the end of this week. How much should Ireland commit to that? Because I know you believe we should. Yes, we should. And and, I mean, there's a need to identify the quantum of funding that's required. And, you know, we're, we're facing a situation where the likelihood is that large parts of Asia will become uninhabitable. There will be 
literally billions of people moving because their own countries will not be habitable if we continue like this. And, you know, I agree with you. Lots of people have been saying it's nice to have the mild weather and all of that kind of thing. But, you know, the impact of climate change is just indisputable in this country and, and right across the world. And we've seen in Europe uh, all of the fires over the, the summer, an increasing number of fires. We're seeing also in wintertime huge amounts of flooding. I travelled down by train to Kerry there last week and I mean the whole way down you could see fields flooded. Mm, we reported the floods in Gorey here in the programme yeah. last week. Incredible yeah. scenes yeah. from Gorey. And Gorey. the impact on that of that on people's lives is absolutely enormous. And that's in a country like Ireland, whereas the there is much more dramatic impacts in developing countries. And regrettably at COP, you know, it's, it was very much at the end mm. of the, the, the discussions that now the whole issue of addressing the, the problems in, in developing countries is coming up. Uh, lots of countries didn't want to, and there was a huge reluctance to debate that last week and to commit in terms of funding to it. Um, we hear, I think, this evening that there is some progress being made, and Eamon Ryan is leading out now in, in relation to the, the, the whole area of developing countries. Uh, but it's going to be a huge job to get people to commit to funding and commit themselves to ensuring that they reduce emissions. OK, one of the other points that was raised by Mary Robinson, Chair of the Elders, and of course our former president who was there at COP27, um, is the subsidies that countries are giving fossil fuel companies, uh, Barry Cowan. And um, I was looking today, 2.2 billion in 2020 is what the Irish government did give to fossil fuel companies. She didn't say that needs to be cut completely. You know, she was reasonable, but she said it needs to be reduced. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, see, that's another issue uh, related to our energy security. And when people talk about us having made huge progress by providing 40% renewables to the grid, the majority of that is land-based wind. And when the wind doesn't blow, you know, fossil fuels mm. kick into action. When the wind blows excessively, we haven't had enough battery storage facilities to capture that and redistribute it. And that's an issue that has been addressed in the context of the McCarthy report that was commissioned by the Taoiseach for Dermot McCarthy to inspect, review and make recommendations as to the failings on the part of Airgrid and the CRU and the department in meeting the ambition that was contained in our renewable targets for 10 years ago, let alone the huge ambition and lack of it maybe that might be foreseen into the future, especially with the potential we have from offshore wind. But it's imperative we don't make the mistakes of the past we learn from the past and we correct those issues by virtue of this report and what it can tell us and how we can change the way in which we seek to provide the right sort of renewables that can have an impact and lessen the load on fossil fuels, which is and a great... You, Daniel? It's been a great cost to the country even before the war in Ukraine in relation to the wholesale energy market and the difficulties associated with that. Are we? Sure. Well, I mean, when it comes to fossil fuel subsidies, we certainly aren't further along in, in terms of eradicating the various subsidies that, that we give. But there is further talk now about kind of increasing taxes. The carbon taxes is one case. But even Eamon Ryan over in COP27 this week was talking about raising funds and aviation, the aviation sector, the shipping sector, and other private sector and banks having to commit funds there. So that's another way of being able to get funds from effectively fossil fuels into these kind of loss and damage funds in that would be a just way of going about okay, it. Okay, uh, briefly, Peter, do you think this particular COP, COP27, has been a bit of a failure? I think this COP was always not expected to be the fireworks of the last COP because COPs have their own special heartbeat. 
And it's going to be about 2027 when we next expect a COP where, where lots of things will happen. And that's because there'll be a global stock take and there'll be an expectation that countries come in 2027 with increased ambition. But there's a lot of really important things happening in this COP and subsequent COPs that will get us to that point, including this really thorny loss and damage. All right, look, we're going to leave it there. But my thanks to Peter, to Barry and to Roisin. Lots more after this break, including Donald Trump's bid to return to the White House. And Ukraine, which would have never happened if I were your president, are something... And even the Democrats admit that. That's something I've seen them admit over and over again. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has launched his third campaign for the White House just one week after a disappointing midterm showing for Republicans. His move will force the party to again decide whether to embrace a candidate whose refusal to accept defeat in 2020 sparked an insurrection and pushed American democracy to the brink. Daniel Murray from the Business Post has stayed with me and joining us now from New York is Irish Central founder and editor Niall O'Dowd. But before we speak to our guests, let's take a listen to some of Donald Trump's big announcement. Two years ago, when I left office, the United States stood ready for its golden age. Our nation was at the pinnacle of power, prosperity and prestige towering above all rivals, vanquishing all enemies, and striding into the future, confident and so strong. Well, let's go to uh, Niall O'Dowd. I'm sure you watched the rest of that speech. Uh, he went on to say how much uh, Russia had respected him in the past, Iran res respected him in the past. The Ukraine war would never have well, happened if he was still in office. Is he back? Is he as full of energy, vim and vigour and self-belief as he always was. Any sense that he has taken well, on board the feelings of, at the midterms? He conveniently ignores the fact that when he was leaving office, there was a riot and thousands of his supporters almost sacked the Washington Capitol building. So, I mean, the idea that uh, he was somehow in a strong position when he left, his ratings were lower than they ever were. And, uh, you know, he, he took a tremendous hit in terms of public opinion because of the set up for what happened at the Capitol, which was a very dangerous moment for American democracy. The speech last night was so bad that Fox News actually got away from it, which is the first time they've ever been known not, not to be kissing the president in terms of covering everything he absolutely does. But um, I, I, I think that he's still dangerous. Obviously, he could win. He's got about 30% of the party, no matter what he does, who agree with him. If he gets into a prolonged debate or discussion or a crowded field, which would really help him in the primaries, he could succeed. But there's no way he'd ever be president. That's a completely impossible. The American people have spoken very clearly and wonderfully in this election. And every election denier who was of significant importance was defeated. Uh, Trump's key figures were defeated. 
And the people said, we've had enough. And he turns around and starts again all over, climbing up the hill, and people are just, frankly, very tired of it. Um, he's declared 720 days before this election. I know that is incredibly unusual. Why do you think he did that? Uh, I think one of the main things is that he's the only president who could be in jail or could be in the White House in two years, depending on what happens. He's the subject of three very big criminal inquiries, one in Atlanta and two in, uh, one in Washington, one in New York City. And they're very dangerous for him because he could conceivably be found guilty on any one of those charges, which are federal crimes. The third one was the secret documents, top secret documents that he took. Um, so what he's doing there is he's trying to knock out the prosecutor, Merrick Garland, who is uh, the attorney general, who is an absolutely brilliant lawyer. And uh, he's now taking the cases uh, after the election is over, the midterm elections, and Trump is trying to basically push him into appointing a special counsel who might not be as severe as, as Mary Garland will be. But the Mary Garland angle is really one to look at because he's like the uh, inspector in Les Miserables. He won't let go if he gets Trump <laughs> and he'll pursue him to the end. Uh, I know one of the big things in the American elections is who can command the most money. Is Republican money moving away from Trump? Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, it's moving away. The biggest single donor um, who uh, I think donated about $15 million to the campaign already, a guy called Griffin, who's a venture capitalist from Chicago, he has announced that he's backing DeSantis, who will be uh, Trump's biggest rival. It seems to be no question. So I think uh, if you follow the money, we looked last night at the launch of the uh, second, third run at the White House. There was nobody of any importance or any wealth in the crowd. None of the big players showed up. None of the politicians okay. showed up. One, one of the politicians said that he couldn't come because the weather was bad and the plane wouldn't fly. In fact, the weather was perfect. So there was a tendency to, at all costs, avoid being seen with Trump all right. when he was launching his campaign. All right, we'll leave it there. I'd lovely to speak to you as always, uh, Nilo Dowd. Um, Daniel, you don't, you're not convinced he's going to make the ticket as a Republican, but you think he might run as an independent? There's a possibility he could, you know. I mean, Donald Trump seems to be motivated almost exclusively by his own ego and a level of narcissism that's kind of rare even in politics. <laughs> so I think it is possible that if he doesn't make it onto the Republican ticket, then that's a big if, uh, that you could even see him run as an independent and really set the cat amongst the pigeons there and maybe pulling support away from the Republican Party. But the likelihood that he'd win the presidential election on an independent ticket, it's is basically zero. So, but he would could split the Republican vote. He could do real damage to the Republican Party. He he do he, he could definitely as an independent. He could also do that before uh, you know while he's running in the primaries for the Republican candidacy as well. I mean, Trump thrived in 2016 because there was such a divided Republican Party. This time around, as as Niall was saying, he he, he holds about 30 percent of the Republican voter base that are very kind of dedicated to him. Uh, you know, so so uh, being able to hold on to them that's kind of a critical mass that he has going in. And if he's 
able to kind of get the Republicans to split their vote across several other ca candidates, then he may be in with the chance even of winning that nomination. Um, the difficulty in bringing around the 70% of Republicans who don't perhaps support Trump at this time is that, I suppose back in 2016, we didn't really know what we were dealing with, did we? I mean, he was a bit of an unknown and he was the underdog. He's definitely not that now. Well, there was a sense that he was going to bring about change and I think was drain the swamp was, was one of the many mottos that he had at the time. I think that the evidence of his presidency is there for, for many people to see. Uh, what decides presidential elections in the United States, similar to what decided the midterms, are these middle ground, almost floating voters that can switch between Republican and Democrats. It appears that he lost them definitely at the 2020 election. It appears he lost them again at last the week at, at the midterms. Are they likely between the midterms and the next presidential election to swing back to Trump for, for any given reason, it's doubtful that something like that, that would happen. Yeah, but Trump's got what he wants, doesn't he? We're all talking about Donald Trump again. Well, absolutely. I mean, the United States is an attention economy and he's an attention merchant. So, uh, and we're speaking about him here as well. So yeah. certainly the, the ego lives on. <laughs> Publicity, he lives for it. All right, we'll leave it there. Nilo Dowd and Daniel Murray, thank you uh, for joining us this evening. That's it from us and from all the late team here. Good night to you all at home. Do take care. <laughs>